I owe the title of today's sermon to Brianna, who uh, a week and a half ago on Wednesday night came screaming through the Wednesday night supper, yelling, I need to knock down the wall. I need to knock down the wall. And we were all trying to stop her. Bill was chasing her, and as she got to the wall, she went knocking down the wall. It was lame, of course. But we laughed. So today's sermon is knocking down the door. The text comes to us from the gospel according to Luke, which is no surprise to you if you've been in church in the last six months. That's what we've been preaching from through the gospel with Jesus making his way toward Jerusalem. Each Sunday becomes more urgent as Jesus faces his cross. This morning's text comes to us after Jesus has announced the sort of apocalyptic ending of the world at some point when Jesus will come again. And this is for the writer of Luke an important point because his community is facing such persecution and really a sense of apocalypse in his own uh, church. And so those words were important, that Jesus will come again and restore the kingdom of heaven. Immediately after that passage, we find today's text. And it begins. I'm reading from the New English Version. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And Jesus said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And then... Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of the Lord. When I think about this parable of the widow, the unfortunate impoverished widow, banging on the door of the unjust judge who neither feared God nor had any respect for human beings. So I think of this widow badgering him until he finally did something. I cannot help but think of my father, who as an insurance salesman would pick out businesses and contractors and badger them to death until he finally got the account. He worked on one for 10 years but he usually got it. To my father, no meant not yet. Whatever it took, honestly, to make it happen, his perseverance would follow through. And with that, he taught me a lot about life. He didn't know the word surrender. In his own way, he was smart and deeply faithful, loving and funny, and in his own way, he was a simple man. Things for him were either good 
or bad, black or white, either or. Maybe because he grew up in a time that seemingly was more simple. There were the good guys and the bad guys, the United States and the Nazis, the free world of democracy and capitalism or the enslaving and dehumanizing world of communism. And while he was not a racist, he wasn't sure about interracial marriage, nor was he a bigot, but he wasn't real comfortable with the issue of homosexuality. He just liked to keep it comfortable and simple. And this was true for his faith as well. For my father, either you were a Christian or you were not. Either He was never self-righteous about it, never judgmental about it. You either accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior or you had not. Either you believed in the Bible and that it was true or it wasn't. There was little room for uh, any sense of grayness or ambiguity or complexity. He just wanted to keep it black and white. And sometimes I wish I were more like him. Less skeptical, less intellectual about the ironies and paradoxes and dialectical parts of life and faith that get stuck in my own mind that can't always prove in the way of faith that one and one equals two. I want to argue with that. Sometimes I wish I had less of a need to question everything and to look below the surface and to wrestle with these ambiguities and complexities in faith and life. I wish I had more of what my father had, especially as he understood prayer. My father understood the practice of prayer very simply. Pray what is on your heart. Pray always. Pray until you get an answer. Never give up. Badger God to death until God will answer the prayer. Every morning he would go into his private room, his private time. He would take his devotional and his Bible with him. And after reading those two, he would take out literally a to-do list. And on that to-do list, he would write down all the things that were on his heart that he knew God needed to do, his prayer list. One of these recently fell out of his Bible as I was thumbing through it, looking at some of the passages he had underlined. And on one side of this to-do list, my mother, BJ, all the children, Jim, Steve, Lee, and Mike, our spouses, our grandchildren, if we had them then. Sometimes he would write beside the name of each one whatever particular issue he felt we needed prayer for, our jobs, our marriages, finances, and so forth. He then listed the names of his friends who were struggling with stuff, cancer, or their jobs, or their faith. And finally, the issues in the world that he thought needed God's help. And in this particular case, a conservative politician that he thought God should step in and help get elected. He was clear about what God needed to do. On the other side of his to-do list was his answered prayer list, basically his done list. These were the items and agendas that he had prayed for and felt that they had been answered. Not always as he wanted, he was quick to say, but apparently he found ways to give thanks to those even so. And those that he didn't quite get his head around, that didn't quite get answered in any way that he could understand, he just simply blotted off the list. Remember, he didn't like ambiguity and contradiction. 
As I said, for me at least, in the way of faith and prayer, I wish I were that simple. And I mean that completely sincerely and genuinely. I don't know why, but stereotypically, it seems to me, the more educated, sophisticated, and intellectually elite that we think we are, the less we are inclined to pray like this. Maybe because we understand that there are untold billions of prayers that go unanswered, that we know God, if there is a God, is not like Santa Claus bringing to us what we want if we're good little boys and girls. We intellectualized folk think that if prayer really worked, then why is there so much pain and hurt and brokenness and innocent suffering and war and injustice? If prayer worked, we reasoned, then the world would be a better place and we would be better people. The irony here should not escape us. While we educated elite understand that God, if there is a God, is not Santa Claus, we discount the power of prayer exactly because God is not like Santa Claus. At least in terms of fixing all the world's deep wounds and bringing to us whatever it is we pray for. The irony is that we are just as black and white as those more simple folk like my father. When God doesn't do what we think God should, we give up on God thinking the whole thing is hocus pocus. The thing is that being enlightened in the world's sense, we are prone to take ourselves and our rational intellectual sophistication way too seriously, which in the end means that we take God way less so. So here's a riddle for you. What's the difference between you and me and God? God never thinks he is you or me. Sometimes the problem with our sophisticated elitism is that we delude ourselves believing that we are in fact smarter than we are, especially when it comes to getting down on our knees and praying to God. I mean, why would we do that if it, it's so plebeian, it's so common, it's, it's just way too evangelical. Besides, I've got two degrees and should be able to figure this out on my own. Why else did I go to school? In reality, we should be laughing ourselves down to the ground, the hubris of it all, like the joke, why are there so many fierce fights in the halls of academia? because there is so little at stake. It's okay to laugh. There was a time in my life when I was embarrassed by the whole notion of someone praying for me. I had this pride thing thinking that I was above that need, and so someone would come up to me and say, Steve, I want you to know I'm praying for you, and I would get all stiff-necked and stuff and say, Thanks, I need the prayer and you need the practice. Thankfully, I have changed. Life has changed me. Life happened enough to me to change my hard, cynical side, and I discovered 
I was as needy and helpless as everyone else, and by the grace of God, I was brought to my knees. Then all my sophisticated theological, intellectual rationalizations were like chaff in the wind. When I discovered I was not God and had nowhere else to turn, then prayer found its voice. This experience, unfortunately, is not a one-time event for me or anyone else I know, maybe because we leak. Faith seems to be a constant process of hubris, then of repentance back on our knees. We get a little uppity and self-important, and then, pow, we get hit in the head by that proverbial two-by-four, and the next thing you know, we're whimpering, help, Ph.D. or not. There is, of course, a better way to live life than in this frantic bipolar roller coaster of faith, and that is the way of Jesus. Pray constantly, he said, without ceasing always, and do not lose heart. The fact is that Jesus was no simpleton either. He was not a simple person. He, more than anyone I know, understood the complexities and ambiguities of humanity and life. The last shall be first, the lost shall be found, the righteous are sinners, and the sinners are made righteous. Power is made perfect in weakness? When it comes to understanding the complexities of the human condition, I hold him up against anyone. He was the most sophisticated person I have ever heard about. He was no black and white kind of guy. Except, apparently, when it comes to the issue of prayer. For Jesus' prayer was as much of his everyday existence as water and air and food because he thought God was like Santa Claus? No. In fact, just the opposite. Jesus saw the suffering, the hurt, the injustice, the lack of peace everywhere he went in the world and in the hearts of those he touched. Yet he prayed constantly for God's will to be done even though he was too terribly aware it was not. He went to the top of mountains to pray. He got into boats to pray. He went out into the wilderness to pray. And his last night before he was to be executed, he went into the Garden of Gethsemane and prayed so fervently, it is said, that he sweated drops of blood. Prayer and life for Jesus were organic. He prayed without ceasing, and he was not ambiguous about it. It's the way for Jesus that he stayed in touch in this relationship, the one with whom he called Father. For Jesus' prayer was the relational connection, the Wi-Fi that let them communicate. This is why he's always telling his disciples and us, especially in Luke, to always pray constantly and therefore you will not lose heart. That's basically what it says. This is important to Luke, as I said, because his community was facing persecution and they needed sustenance and they needed energy and they needed strength. 
Jesus said, pray and let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream, even though it didn't. Jesus said, pray that the lion and the lamb would lie down together, even though they were not yet. Jesus said, pray that there will be no more tears and suffering, even though we all know how far we are. Even as they looked around and saw how far we are. This was not peculiar to Christians. The Old Testament is full of these kinds of prayers. After Israel faced the burning of the temple, they lifted up these words in Psalm 44. Because of you, talking to God, because of you, we are being killed all day long and accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Rouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake. Do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? It's a prayer, of course. The most basic, fundamental prayer of all in the Bible is full of them. It's called lament. How long, O Lord, do something, God. Help. Unfortunately, we get to this place the hard way. Knocked to our knees in grief or fear, fear or illness or conflict or hurt or despair. We go there when something we love dearly has been threatened or taken away or something we love way too dearly, whatever addiction, has not been taken away. This is why Luke's parable in this morning's passage is so important. Pray without ceasing, he says, and do not lose heart. For there was like a widow who went to an unrighteous judge who didn't care for God or anybody else, and she banged on his door until he finally roused himself and got up to give her what she wanted so that he could get back to sleep. That's the words of the unrighteous judge. Now, even more than that, as God is righteous and loves all things, even more than that will God respond to your prayers. even though we may not always understand it. The risk of being too personal, which, as you know, I usually don't have a problem with, soon after Nancy died of a car accident in 2001, my girls, Megan and Amanda, Megan 16, Amanda 14, decided to risk it again and get back in the car three days after the accident. There's another car. It was the first time Megan had driven since the accident, and they needed to get on the horse. We all knew it, so they went to the store. As they were pulling out of the driveway, Amanda noticed that the emergency brake was still on, and so she'd said something to Megan. It was perceived as being critical about that, and Megan automatically took that as Amanda criticizing her for driving when the accident occurred, although it had nothing to do with Megan's driving. It was a complete accident, another person's fault. Yet Megan took that personally. And at that point, they began screaming at each other, screaming at each other, using the worst profanity you can imagine. They spilled out of the car. They made their way into my office. They're facing each other, screaming at each other. And I was sitting in my seat looking at this. And it occurred to me, I can't fix it. I cannot fix this. And so I stood up, and with tears rolling down my cheeks, I said just that. I, I can't fix it. Megan started crying. I started crying more. 
Amanda facing her oldest sister whom she idolized and her father now breaking down in tears fled to her bedroom while Megan and I found our way in an embrace together. Crying now almost uncontrollably, we staggered our way into the bathroom where we ended up collapsing on the floor in front of the toilet paper rack so that we would have something to wipe our faces with. And there we held each other and cried uncontrollably, dry heaving cry, snot running out of our noses cry, all over the place crying, we could barely breathe. It occurred to me, as I look back, that that was a prayer. Help. And just as soon as we said that prayer, it occurred to me that there was relief. A, that we could have the prayer, in fact, to begin with, but B, that we sat there and held each other, not alone, collapsed on the floor, not alone, but the presence of God incarnate with us, crying, broken-hearted, holding us just as Megan and I held each other. For whatever reason, whether God chooses to or whether in God's mysterious way of creating this world the way it is, God does not always fix it either any more than I could. Certainly not at our time schedule. But instead, as we confess, God came into the world with us, dwelt with us, sat with us, held us, and comforted us. Friends, this is the reason that Jesus says to pray unambiguously, always, and not lose heart. The more we pray, the more bloody our knuckles are from banging on the proud door of our skeptical and cynical and disbelieving little rooms of, uh, of construction. The more we are able to see that the door that we are banging on has already been opened. For God is the one who hears our prayers even before we ask them and pushes his way through that door already in the abundance of his amazing love and grace. The simple fact is that God has already opened this door to us, and even the doors of hell, as we confess, will not prevail against it. But for love and freedom's sake, God waits for us to fall on our knees and bang and bang and bang until we finally see that the door is open and that God has already come in. Pray always, Jesus says, and do not lose heart. There's nothing complicated about that. Let us bring forth the gifts of our lives and our labors.